0: That's stamps.com. Code program.
1: Hi, I'm Jennifer Palmieri, and welcome to Just Something About Her from The Recount and iHeartRadio. On this podcast, I talk to powerful women about how they made it to the top on their own terms. Here to help me introduce this week's episode is my producer, Sari Soffer.
2: Hey, Jen, we have Dame Karen Pierce on the show this week. She is the British ambassador to the U.S. and another one of our trailblazers as she's the first woman to hold that position.
1: And spoiler alert, she is also one of a new group of all women to hold the U.K.'s top diplomatic posts.
2: Yeah, I know. It's awesome. It's also been said that Dame Pierce is one of the more high profile of those women diplomats. She joined the foreign office in the 80s, and she's been posted in places like Tokyo, the Balkans. Geneva and Afghanistan. And this is the fourth time she served in the United States. And she took over the ambassadorship when the previous guy was forced out because it leaked that he spoke poorly about Trump. So she started in 2020 amidst Brexit, a historic election here, and then a couple months later, COVID.
1: Yeah, and we were talking a lot about this historic fight for democracy at home in the US with the recent elections, capital insurrections. But I, we wanted to bring Ambassador Pierce on the show to talk about where democracy stands on a global level. She has such an interesting perspective because she is a professional observer, right? Right. She has not actually lived in the United Kingdom in a long time. She has been in other countries. So I think that she can have a perspective, maybe perhaps a little distance, that when we're inside the United States, you can't have. And I want to talk about both our roles in promoting democracy in the modern world, especially amidst the rise of China and Russia.
2: Yeah, and I want to add that we're recording this amidst the recent rocket escalations in Israel and Gaza. So I am very excited to hear if Dame Pierce has any perspectives to add on what's going on there.
1: Yeah, let's get to it with her. Ambassador Karen Pierce, uh, welcome to Just Something About Her. And thanks so much for talking with us. Thanks for having me. I want to start off by getting to know a little more about you and your posting. And, uh, you know, at this time, there's just so much disruption and change in the world and in politics and uh, the world order and get your take on that. Mm. But let's start with you. Um, I was really excited to read that this year for the first time, all of the UK's ambassadors to the permanent members of the UN Security Council are women. For those who don't know, that's America, Russia, China and France. I understand that soon 18 of the top diplomatic posts will be filled by women. And I'm just wondering, what was your reaction to that news? Did it happen all at once? Or is this just, you know, sort of the pipeline kind of taking over and, you know, women who've been sort of toiling for the last few decades reaching the uh, top post?
3: I think for me personally, we knew that women were taking more and more of the top posts. So to that extent, the pipeline was making good on its promise. But it had not hit me until the Foreign Office announced that that meant that women were occupying all the permanent member posts. And actually all the G7 ones as well, bar the EU itself. I had known about the percentage, but the geographical aspect of it hit me only recently. And, And as you say, it's fantastic. I hope that young women and school Kids will look at this and think, great, I want a career like that.
1: Yeah, or just like that's what happened, you know, and I had when I worked for President Obama, a friend of mine had a young daughter. Mm -hmm. When John Kerry became the Secretary of State, she's like, well, no, because only girls can be Secretary of State because she'd seen (laughs) what she had seen was, you know, what she was aware of was like Madeleine Albright, Condoleezza Rice, Mm -hmm. Hillary Clinton. Good for her. (laughs) Right. And then I think it's so important in in this country that little girls and boys see Kamala Harris be vice president.
3: That is just fantastic. And You know, all congratulations and credit to the vice president It's such an important message. I mean, I will say that America is usually ahead of the rest of the world in this sort of thing. But I agree. Kamala Harris is a very special threshold to be crossed.
1: In some ways we can be ahead, but then, you know, we haven't we haven't had a first one president. You all have done that a couple of times. (laughs) Mm, Yes. Is there something that you could point to that either structurally or culturally or the problems that are being dealt with right now that sort of led to this burst of women at the top of leadership and diplomatic posts for the United Kingdom?
3: First of all, I think everybody now, whatever political party or whatever mainstream political party, realizes that you've got to look like the people you represent. And if you actually want to move society forward, you've got to show that there's a place for everyone in your cabinet. And Boris Johnson's government, our current government, Mm -hmm. actually is the most diverse cabinet that we've ever had. When I first joined the Foreign Office, Mm -hmm. it was only about eight years since the Foreign Office had lifted the marriage bar up to 1973, if you got married, you had to leave Wow, Uh, because it was thought that you couldn't serve two masters. uh, And I use that word deliberately. In 1991, we lifted the gay bar. So that came far too late, but that's now gone. But what particularly, I think, made the difference in the last uh, few years, there was a starburst from the head of, The foreign ministry, who's called Simon Mm -hmm. MacDonald. He now sits in our upper house, which is appointed in Parliament in in London. And secretaries of state, foreign secretaries, from Boris Johnson to Jeremy Hunt to Dominic Raab, so all men, uh, who really wanted to push this diversity agenda. And those two things came together. And the foreign ministry made a determined proactive effort. To make these appointments. One of the practical things we've done, which I think is more important perhaps than gets realised, is we look at jobs as a block. So it might be perfectly legitimate to say woman X is a brilliant candidate, but not quite right for job A. But if you can look at it in the round, Mm -hmm. you can say she might not be quite right for job A, but B, C and D are coming up, she's very good for sea. And then that enables us to broaden out and get a much better match of talent to role. But also it enables us fully to take diversity into account. I mean, to be honest, I think it was an idea whose time has camp. Right, You could say long overdue. Yeah. It has been important to see people like Hillary Clinton and Madeline Albright in the American mm-hmm. roles. I remember going to Afghanistan and copying what Mrs. Clinton uh, was doing on the grounds that if it's good enough for Mrs. Clinton, uh, it's good enough for everybody else. We've only had one female foreign secretary, which was Margaret Beckett. But nevertheless, everybody agrees that we want to get to 50% of women at all levels.
1: What was Hillary Clinton doing in Afghanistan that you modeled?
3: It was her bearing. It was the way she respected the traditions without crossing any values lines.
1: When you say respecting the traditions, you mean respecting the religious traditions? Because that can be a difficult thing for women, is that how do you respect traditions in different countries in terms of how women's dress, but also, you know, would be representing your country and your culture? That's
3: exactly it. If you wear a headscarf, do not wear a headscarf. <laughs> right. And I think where Mrs. Clinton came down was that her dress was very respectful, but she didn't wear a headscarf. And we thought that's a good model to follow. Although I have to say, when I was ambassador there, the Afghan government, could not have been more courteous about letting ambassadors wear what they thought was appropriate and you try and strike this balance when I went to Iran with the foreign secretary then Boris Johnson I managed to get myself on the front pages of Iranian newspapers in fact I think I may have achieved all Iranian newspapers because my headscarf fell off as we went in to meet the foreign minister and I knew the foreign minister and there was this photograph of him telling me nicely politely he was laughing to put my scarf back up yeah and then there was a debate in iran about whether it was right for him to have done that and whether it was right for me to have let my scarf slide down and and it was very interesting uh, it was about 50 50 days who said absolutely right to tell this diplomat how to behave in our country. The other half said, no, you absolutely shouldn't have told that. It it was a very interesting insight into the debate. And of course, not for me to opine on, but I think they did relax the headscarf law about three weeks after that. I'm not claiming cause and effect. I just think it was an interesting indication of the level of debate in the country.
1: I mean, I recognize that as an important cultural moment. I think some people would say, oh, isn't that silly that they're focused on, you know, she's the ambassador from the United Kingdom. Why are you focused on what she's wearing? Or, Or, you know, it's not from her culture that she should wear the headscarf. But to prompt that kind of discussion and debate within that country You know, it's not a small thing because these traditions really do matter in how the women of the country are treated and they matter in how the representatives are received. They really are very big statements. That's exactly right. They're very big statements.
3: I would say for the record, you know, if you go and see the head of state, or I would go and see religious leaders, then absolutely I would wear it. A headscarf because that's a, a a level of respect that you ought to convey. And there are very similar dress code rules if you go to Buckingham Palace, and there are very similar dress code rules if you see the Pope. Yes. So you know it's not that one wants to be deliberately contesting, but you're absolutely right about the representational point. You have to be respectful, but represent your own culture and values.
1: I, Because um, I traveled a lot with President Clinton and President Obama, both in, in when you go to Saudi Arabia or, you know, a state dinner in Japan, I would look to see what Hillary Clinton was doing. I would look to see what <laughs> Mrs. Obama was doing when she was first lady. One time, actually, I was in Japan, in Tokyo, and Caroline Kennedy was our ambassador. And mm, I was yes. seated diagonally from her at a state dinner. And I was like, good, Caroline Kennedy is right in my line of sight, right? So I will just do whatever Caroline Kennedy does. And at one point she leaned over to me and she's like, do we clink the wine glasses during the toast? I was like, what? (laughs) I don't know. (laughs) right yeah not only are you the ambassador you're caroline kennedy you know like i was like but she got into trouble the next day because like a little bit of her elbow was showing and there was a lot of oh my goodness yeah there was a lot of press about it the next day Mm -hmm. it follows ambassadors everywhere Mm -hmm. um and actually this is your second year as ambassador
3: just come into my Second year. I came in spring last year and it's been a year mainly of lockdown and COVID protocols. I know, know, but it's getting better. It is definitely getting better. And I'm now being fully vaccinated. So that's good.
1: Had you been posted in DC before?
3: Yes, I had 25 Mm -hmm. years ago. Uh, So I caught the last end Mm -hmm. of President George H.W. Bush and then the first three years of President Clinton. I mean, I I love Washington, D.C. I think it's one of the world's great cities, not only is it a very beautiful, well laid out city, it exudes democracy, it exudes power wherever you turn. People are engaged in politics. It's a very energizing city and it deals with really big issues, not just for the American people, but for the world stage. So I really like being here.
1: You came in during the Trump presidency. You know, obviously, like I'm a Democrat, but even if you look at it through like a little D Democrat, just concerned about the republic, it's a really difficult time for democracy. Mm -hmm. How do you approach this job now when there's you know, questions about America standing in the world, I think that's probably true for your country as well. We have to sort of look at a problem, I think, fresh because you can't rely on old models to sort of hold up. And also when you're having to represent the United Kingdom after Brexit, what are you and your colleagues trying to Convey to the world, sort of reassure the world, because, you know, it's just at a fundamental level, we're just sort of going through these revulsions of change everywhere. And I think we want some certainty that the US and the UK are special relationship, that these two countries in particular are able to continue to lead. How do you look at from both perspectives?
3: I think that's a great question. I think we'll have to pronounce on Brexit. I think it is too simplistic, to be honest to see it as part of the populist trend that backs certain politicians really? and Trump being one of them. When Britain went into the European Union in the 1970s, there were lots of tensions then. And there has been at times a very uneasy balance. Uh, so right. I think it came from a different impulse, but you know, fundamentally historians will have to look at that.
1: Came from a different, like not nationalistic impulse.
3: Possibly nationalistic, but one that was an undercurrent for very many years. Not right. necessarily populist. I wouldn't say it was populistic. There's a very strong attachment in the UK to sovereignty. That's a better way of, okay. of putting it. And that goes back to 1066 and William the Conqueror. <laughs> you know, okay. this is where I'm going to. Yes, gonna leave no, that.
1: that makes sense. And also, I think World War Two. Right, I imagine that exactly, exactly that experience of the UK remaining. British
3: history has just reinforce that tendency but i'll leave it for historians to the your your main question if you were interviewing boris johnson now our prime minister he would say it is fantastic that president biden has made clear america is back leading as a force for good on the world stage the world is infinitely safer to have america in that position pushing American values which are universal values and the Mm -hmm. role of the UK in this is to support to help ensure open societies and open markets are the model that comes out successfully and not authoritarian regimes and to make sure that we problem solve and we burden share alongside America in this enterprise and he would encourage Americans. He was born in America. He would encourage Americans. I did not do- know that. Yes, yes. However difficult some of the questions are, and however unfair some of the outcomes, he firmly believes, and I firmly believe, that the world is a safer place for American leadership on the world stage. So we would support that. I think this open societies theme is critically important in a way it hasn't been since the 1930s and 40s and 50s, to be honest. Mm -hmm. Uh, We face a real challenge from authoritarianism, not just because China and Russia see the current situation as a competition to reset the rules of international affairs. Russia particularly keeps saying the West is dead. No, we're not. Right. And we're not going to cede the 21st century to authoritarianism. But we know we have to make good on what that looks like. And we also know that there are very many what you might think of as silent majority countries who don't want to take sides, but who do want to participate in the benefits that open markets and free trade bring. And we need to make sure that they can do that. And we also need to make sure that all the big international institutions have a place for these people, many of which were set up after the Second World War with American and UK leadership. Mm -hmm. It's now our task to make sure they work in a more competitive and uncertain age. So that's one strand of it. So those are
1: things like NATO, WTO, those are the kinds of institutions you talk about.
3: I was thinking particularly the UN, the international financial institutions. But yes, I would absolutely add the World Trade Organization to that, World Health Organization. Mm -hmm. I think NATO is a little bit different because NATO has a a defined membership because it's Euro-Atlantic. And there's a homogeneity there that you wouldn't get in the UN for obvious reasons. But yes, we want to modernize NATO's approach to defense. Mm -hmm. And then you asked me about the special relationship between the UK uh, and the US. I would say absolutely. President Biden has used that term when he phoned the prime minister. It's important in
1: your country to hear that, right? Mm -hmm. Because I've worked Mm -hmm. for two presidents. You know, I have some familiarity with it and, you know, study history. (laughs) Try to be a good citizen that way. But- for the American president to use this term, the special relationship, it does sort of lift the UK as the prime ally, the ally among allies. And is that important? And why is that important?
3: I like your phrase, ally among allies. Right, <laughs> the special relationship was coined by Winston Churchill 75 years ago in his famous Missouri speech, Fulton, Missouri, where he coined a, an even more famous phrase, the iron Curtain to describe what the Soviet Union was doing post-World War II.
1: This was during Harry Truman's presidency, which is why they were in Missouri. That's exactly
3: right. I think, to be honest, the media care about it rather more than anyone else does. So (laughs) the media set it up as a kind of totemic sign of where the UK stands in the affections of any Republican or Democrat, any incoming administration, As a country, as a government, we are not so needy (laughs) that we um, we have to hear it. But the
1: British press.
3: The British press have set it as a test. And my personal view is that it's worth just passing that test straight off and then it's not an issue. But I do think it's a very good phrase for what you said, Jennifer, about ally among allies, closest ally among allies. It's a very good way of encapsulating closeness of being able to fight alongside each other, being able to have these shared endeavors in peacetime as well. Right. So special relationship is a useful phrase, but we're not so needy that we need to hear it all the time.
1: I know all about the press being needy, particularly the British press. But anyway, I want to delve into the relationship between America and our British allies, especially as it relates to what we represent on the world stage amidst this new clash of powers with China and Russia. But first, we have to take a quick break to pay some bills. We'll be right back with the British ambassador to the U.S., Dame Karen Pierce.
0: Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.
1: And we're back with a British ambassador to the U.S., Dame Karen Pierce. So you were just talking about how the British press is a little obsessed with hearing that the UK is the United States' number one ally, that we have a special relationship. But I think it's a two-way street. We in America just might be a little less attuned to it, which is something I've experienced working for presidents. But eventually you learn (laughs) there's a time when the chips are really down. And like, that is when... (laughs) With that. You know, all of a sudden you're like, oh, right. We really need to have each other's backs, whether it's the UN Security Council, or it's an issue involving NATO, or, you know, disinformation campaigns coming from Russia and, and mm-hmm. China. But, you know, it's interesting, you talked about that Russia wants to say that the, did you say that the West is dead? Is, that, is Yes, that? they
3: frequently say that, end of right. the West. The end of it's the their West. favorite phrase. Yeah. Right.
1: And I know that the Biden administration is very concerned that, you know, China holds that view as well. Exactly. When President Biden gave his sort of State of the Union-like speech in front of Congress, he made democracy itself a Mm, focal mm -hmm, point, I think, mm -hmm, partly mm -hmm. to say, you know, if democracy is working, that means we're building bridges. If democracy is working, it means that the results of the elections are upheld. And as partly a pushback to both China and Russia that are trying to argue this, can you look at any other time in history you mentioned the 30s, 40s, 50s where the US and the UK you know might have been in this sort of precarious position. A friend of mine just wrote a book about the space race and that was a time where America had to prove that a democratic government can do complicated hard things even with all of the messiness that comes with democracy. You know, because the Soviet Union at the time had been the first in space with Sputnik with their satellite. Do you feel like we're at a similar time now where China builds a lot of infrastructure, a lot of green infrastructure, because they just decide they're going to do it and they do it? Are we at a similar kind of dangerous position now that we have to prove democracy can work? And is there some other time that you look back on and you say, you know, we were in sort of a similar time period in the 50s or whatever. That kind of helps guide your thinking because- You have to look at the world now and say, I want to learn from experience, but I also want to be very open to the fact that some of the stuff that we're going through, we've never seen before. And how do you approach all that?
3: I think that's actually right. Some of the things we're going through, we haven't seen before because we haven't had the rise of China before. And precisely because of the brand of communism that China has and the size of her population and her approach to world affairs and her recent history, this is something new. And the rise of China is going to be an incredibly important driver for a lot of what we, America, Europe and others do this century. But we have Mm -hmm. faced crises in democracy before, and I would actually go back to the 1930s And the sorts of things FDR was saying about freedom and what it meant to be a democratic country, as opposed to what was going on with the Nazis at the time. And I think that's also a very important precursor. And if you look at 1941, so this year is also the 80th anniversary of something called the Atlantic Charter, which Franklin Delano Roosevelt and Winston Churchill signed on board a British warship called the Prince of Wales. And it's about democracy and it's about the duty that governments owe their citizens. And then it's about what governments can do who are democratic on the world stage to help the world's citizens. And it's a very good seminal document and it eventually gave rise to the charter of the United Nations and then to NATO. So at the time it was absolutely groundbreaking. And I think we may well be in an era where another document like that would have a place in the modern world to set out why democracy matters, what its benefits are, why any country will prosper and thrive more. If it's democratic and what that means for citizens and their equal access to services and their equal access to freedoms. You know, I quite hanker in my own mind after an updating of the four freedoms, or, you know, can we somehow monitor Mm. how the four freedoms are doing in all these international institutions? So I do think that intellectual framing is very important to give countries something to rally to. And I know. President Biden wants to have the summit for democracy later this year. And I think that will be an important moment. And Boris Johnson certainly wants to use the G7 summit to contribute to that set of thinking around open societies uh, and to reassure emerging powers that they don't have to do it in an authoritarian way. It might be messy, as you say, but ultimately, democracy leads to more benefits for the ordinary citizen. And that, in turn, makes a country more prosperous and secure. But I do agree with you. We have to make that case again and again. Right. And to pay tribute for a moment to what the Chinese have done to lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty without aid, I mean, that is a very Hmm. genuine historic achievement. But in terms of Belt and Road, that fundamentally is the Chinese domestic economy (laughs) reaching out into other countries and doing things for the benefit of the Chinese domestic economy. It's not a multilateral Mm -hmm. benefit in that sense, but it's an offer to developing countries and i think we need to think a little bit more about what our offer is to help them with infrastructure help them get to grips with the consequences of climate change help them cope with new technology and i don't think we've got there mm-hmm. yet to be absolutely frank yeah and we collectively the g7 the d10 whichever grouping you want to pick of democracies mm-hmm. we haven't yet got a compelling offer to make to developing countries so Boris Johnson has invited to the G7 summit in June India, Australia, South Korea, uh, South Africa because they're democracies but they have a technological edge and we want to see if we can start to answer some of these questions.
1: So it seems like that there is a global effort, US, UK, to try to harness the other, You know, I think maybe you referred to them earlier as the silent majority, these countries that don't want to get involved necessarily in a fight between us two and Russia and China, but also understand that the democratic powers leading is ultimately probably best for stability in the world, Mm -hmm. both the technical work that has to happen Mm -hmm. and the embracing of these big broader principles.
3: That's a very good way of putting it. And I think the democracies need to band together to make sure that international standards coming out of these new technologies are open and transparent and accessible To all, that they Mm -hmm. reinforce benefits for the ordinary citizen. So you're using AI to increase the potential of cities, say, to provide benefits for ordinary citizens. You're not using it to spy on ordinary citizens. So it's that sort of difference. There's obviously safety in collaboration on big issues like health and climate that have this global dimension. The door is open, the hand is offered in that respect
1: i mean i certainly haven't seen a time of this kind of turmoil for example what's happening in israel right now you know fighting in gaza is not that unusual the kind of fighting that's breaking out in neighborhoods across israel is you know so in my own mind i think well you know i kind of normally know how these kinds of conflicts get resolved but this is something different that's happening. You can't look at what's happening in the Middle East just as an example and say, you know, the United States will apply the same sort of pressures and measures that we normally do. We can guess how this is going to resolve because something different is happening there. It seems like the same kind of reckonings that's happening globally. So in your own, like how you get through the day in your own mind, are you trying to ground yourself in history and your own experience while keeping an eye out for how things are different? Or are you looking at what's happening globally with fresh eyes?
3: I think, to be honest, if you're in the foreign policy profession, you have to do a bit of both. So you've got to be aware of historical parallels, not least because some of the people taking part in the protests or whatever are aware of the historical dimension. And it's always useful to know what tools might be in the locker to help you deal with a situation. And sometimes some of the Mm -hmm. things we thought about in the 60s and 70s might not have been used for a while, but ultimately might be helpful. I'm talking generically here. sure. In terms of how dangerous is the current situation, I don't think it's as dangerous as the 50s. I mean, I'm not a historian, so this is very superficial, for which I apologize.
1: You're more of a historian than me, though, I'm sure.
3: (laughs) I think in the 50s, you genuinely did have the threat of use of nuclear weapons again, hanging over people, and people were not sure how the Cold War between the West and the Soviet Union was, was going to develop and what might happen. And we're not at that stage. I don't want to imply we are. Sure, But you're right. You do have to evaluate each situation afresh because you don't want to miss something that would actually be the key to solving it or is a critical element. You know, one of the really interesting things about the Middle East, I think, is the way that 20 years ago, with the exception of the Arab-Israeli conflict over the Middle East peace process, the rest of the Middle East was a very different place from how it is now. So you've got to take account of all those equities, the desire for stability, to keep the maritime lanes open, to reduce the destabilizing threat from Iran, as well as the nuclear agreement with Iran. You're absolutely right. There are many more pieces on the chessboard that we have to get lined up and sort out and resolved. And you just have to be able, I think, to have 360 degree vision, to be absolutely honest, to be aware of all the different pressures and the consequences that dealing in one area may have for others.
1: I mean, that's the thing I think, you know, I think about my friends working for President Biden. I think that is the thing that would keep me up at night Mm -hmm, is that, mm -hmm. am I looking at this through entirely the wrong lens? Am I letting history weigh me down and blind me as opposed to taking what's happening at face value? Seems very difficult.
3: I think that's such a good point. And if you think of the Middle East, I remember at the time of the Arab Spring, and everybody saw that as a end of Cold War type Moment, even though the Middle East didn't have a Cold War, but you get what I mean. Everybody looked at yes. it through the prism of that analogy. Yeah, And then one American professor said, I think what the Middle East needs isn't democracy first, it's capitalism. And you can disagree with that statement, but I think the point he was making that to help a society develop, you might actually want to look at other things about changing the nature of an economy So it grows opportunities. And I thought that was an interesting way of looking at it. As I say, I'm not saying he was right, just that it's an added angle that I actually think we don't take enough account of the economics in a lot of what we do.
1: Right. Or individuals, you know, Bob Gates, who was our former secretary of defense, Mm. had studied the Soviet Union, was an expert on the Soviet Union for a very long time, said none of us predicted Berlin Wall, which is like in the shorthand for like none of us predicted Mm. the wall Mm -hmm. coming down. None of us Sovietologists (laughs) predicted that the Soviet Union would fall as quickly as it did and the manner it did. And that was, you know, a combination of, I think, economics, but then also individuals after, Mm -hmm. you know, only for so long being willing to... Mm -hmm not have uh, their say so yeah that's it seems like it's a hard it's uh, 360 degrees seems like the right the right approach
3: <laughs> yeah i think that's right all
1: right that's a great time to take a break but before you go i have to ask you a little bit about fashion because for those who don't know you have an extremely bold and colorful style and i know there's a reason for that that's after the break with ambassador karen pierce on just something about her Welcome back to Just Something About Her with Ambassador Karen Pierce. So, we talked a little bit about fashion at the top of the show, headscarf or not, when you're in countries in the Middle East, for example. But I wanted to circle back because you, in particular, have this amazing sense of fashion and how to use it. Tell us about it because how you used it to sort of empower yourself. There was the famous moment where you wore a red and black feather boa when you were the UK's <laughs> ambassador before the United Nations. At a moment where you had to confront Russia about a very difficult thing, discussing Syria chemical weapon strikes. And I know you wore stilettos throughout Afghanistan. I, I know that was not modeling Hillary, because Hillary's definitely not wearing stilettos. And Vogue just did this wonderful piece about you and your colleagues. But tell us about your theory about this, because it's a very refreshing <laughs> and joyous, may I say, way to look at coming back to work as people are getting ready to do that.
3: So for me, you know everyone's different. yeah, I mean, it's yeah. about identity and it's about confidence. Now, I like fashion, but I would not pretend ever to be a trailblazer for it. There is a huge amount of fashion which I would look hideous in, but other people look fantastic <laughs> in. So I'm not one of those people who is going to wear the up to date styles because uh, they just won't suit me. Uh, but I do have some styles I like a lot. And I, I've always liked good suits. Not quite sure why. Probably a school uniform fetish when I was younger. Yeah. But I've always liked a good, well-cut suit. And it has always given me confidence and allowed me to step into the role of being the British representative, even when I was younger. So i go to a meeting and I always felt if it was an important meeting and I were well-dressed, by some process, that enabled me to speak out either for my department or my country or whatever it was uh, that needed to be done. Because it made you feel
1: like you had sort of your armor and your best foot forward or because you were received better?
3: That's a very good point. I think it's both in different circumstances. So sometimes I would do it purely to make me feel better and give me confidence. Yeah, And I think that applies right the way across the board. You know, if we're going to party and we want to make a good impression you know people care about what they wear but i think you're absolutely right jennifer it is possible to discern that people treat you differently when you're better dressed smarter dressed. that's a better way uh, of putting it and i actually managed to test this i was at some conference can't remember what and it was one of those where you wear casual clothes and in the evening i put Mm -hmm. a smart dress on and high heels And there was an instant difference in the people who wanted to come up and talk to me. And, you know, possibly that's a bit of sexism. I mean, it happens. But I think also it's more about people notice. They notice smartness. They treat it as a mark of respect. And it was drilled into me as a young diplomat in Tokyo that if I dressed well, that was a mark of respect to my hosts. And I think that has stayed with me as well.
1: But my understanding is not that you're well dressed; it's that you're making very bold fashion choices that seem to be unique to you. And my understanding is that wasn't always the case. Was there a moment where you thought, "I'm going to dress smartly," as you say, but I'm going to present a little more flair, as we might say in the in the U.S.
3: I think that's fair. Particularly in the UN, you're dealing with some very tricky issues. Some of them are very complicated. They require you to negotiate with other people. You stay in the same room for a very long time. Uh, And I think Blair's a good way of putting it. You know, just an interesting pair of shoes or an interesting boa. It was actually fake fur, but the Russians tried to pretend as part of their campaign that it was real fur uh, and that it was an exotic Real fur, such as ordinary people wouldn't wear, but they um, came a cropper with that. It was a case of fake fur, fake news. It was fake. I got it on the internet for five bucks.
1: (laughs) A time where there's like truth from the internet. Anyone who saw the red and black boa knows it was fake fur because there's no color like that red in nature.
3: Exactly. So the Russians ought to have thought of it.
1: (laughs) This is a case where it did not take a lot of scientists to root out Russia disinformation.
3: Exactly. Exactly.
1: British uh, Vogue did this uh, great piece on you recently and in response to why you dress the way you dress as a diplomat. The writer, her name is Olivia Marks, she said, perhaps the bigger question is, why don't we expect our diplomats to look like peers? Is that part of why you present yourself in a colorful way? Is it another way of normalizing uh, women in these positions and to show that you can do it in your own manner?
3: I don't know that I would think about it to that extent. I'm sure a psychologist could have an entertaining time. They always (laughs) uh, do. Analyzing (laughs) um, all of this. I think a number of things are going on. I would deliberately choose it sometimes if I had a particularly memorable thing to do or if there was a particularly celebratory occasion or if I wanted to make a particular impact.
1: Thank you so much for your time. And I hope that someday soon I might even be able to meet you in person. That would be delightful. Well, that would be lovely. Thanks very much. Bye bye. Bye. Sarah, you're there?
2: Yes, I'm here. So, what did you think? I thought it was super interesting. I'm really glad we asked her about fashion <laughs> because, you know, yeah. some of the discussion about fashion, mainly that interesting story she told about wearing a headscarf in Iran. I think it really tied into the topic that we were really interested in discussing, which is promoting democracy. But she was talking about how, you know, when she does go to these countries, it is a symbol how you dress and how you are portraying the values that your country holds, the values of freedom, of expression, of religion. And so I thought that headscarf debate was even more than just how she dresses and how she's perceived in those other countries.
1: Yeah. You know, we think these things are small and we're like, oh, it's so stupid that the press is focusing on a woman's wardrobe. But really, these are all, you know, how a woman expresses herself, dresses herself, what the culture expects. These are actually non-insignificant issues. right?
2: They're mindful messages that we're sending. Yeah.
1: And how you balance that by showing respect. You know, it's just like such a fascinating life she's had where she's been exposed to and had to navigate all of these cultures. But also you have to have some core part of you that's remaining true to your country and what your country expects and where it sees its place in the world. And I hadn't really considered that piece of it.
2: Right. And you have to say true to yourself, yeah. she was kind of holding true to her own self-expression in order to make sure that she was staying true to herself in some of these, you know, larger conversations, these very difficult conversations,
1: yeah. it's a lot to take on, yeah. And it was also reassuring to speak with her because, you know, I'm always churning on these questions about w- whether our republic is on the path to thriving or, you know, it may be that our best days are behind us. It's something I I worry a lot about. Mm -hmm. And I think it's very difficult to strike the balance of keeping fresh eyes so that you can look at problems anew in the world but also appreciating sort of the arc of history and recognizing history as it's getting ready to repeat itself. And she's clearly thought a lot about that. You know, it's interesting that she thinks we have been in a perilous place like this before. She went back to the 30s to see it. You know, I had a different sort of time frame in my mind for when America was tested about, whether we could meet big challenges, whether a democracy could do that. Maybe you had to be an authoritarian state like the Soviet Union at the time in order to accomplish big things. And mm-hmm. America met that moment. She had another time where she saw the free world as it was respond. And so I do come out of this conversation more optimistic about you know our chances if leaders are thinking in that sort of complete way.
2: Yeah, um, I'm going to probably botch this quote, but I just heard it somewhere that history doesn't always repeat, but it often rhymes, something like that. So there are things that you can take from the past that are useful in the future, but it might not be exactly the same. And then also, I just thought it was really interesting that she did compare it to the 30s and suggested that we might need a document, a declaration of some sort about why democracy is necessary in this modern world. And sometimes just stating something like that, you know, reminding the citizens of the world why democracy is important could be an effective tool to use right now as these institutions are being questioned.
1: Yeah. As it turns out, words matter, particularly when you put them on a piece of paper. Yep, exactly. (laughs) You know, because I think we can look at the problems the United States is facing, everything from crumbling bridges and roads to a racial reckoning and get overwhelmed, but In some ways, all of these things are reflective of a democracy that's not quite working as well as it should. And if you commit to that, that kind of leadership could be really valuable right now.
2: Yeah, it can remind all of us why democracy is important and the ways in which we have not held true to those democratic values, and then remind the world why we keep working at it. You know, I thought it was really interesting that she was saying that China, you know, in its infrastructure projects, in its Belt and Road Initiative, is offering something to the developing world. And we need to figure out what we have to offer as democratic countries to those developing countries, those like silent majority countries, as she called them, that want democratic institutions, but also want economic
1: success. We keep coming to the same big place, very perilous moment, very high stakes. You hope that the right people are leading, but you also realize how each of us engages in the democracy Mm -hmm. matters so much too.
2: Yeah, made me think a lot. (laughs) And
1: if she's thinking that way, the Biden administration is thinking that way, Mm -hmm. that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It's happening in other parts of the world. Yeah. So that makes me hopeful, but like ever vigilant, ever vigilant. This is Just Something About Her, a podcast from The Recount and iHeartRadio. Thank you to Ambassador Karen Pierce for being on the show. If you like this episode, please subscribe to the podcast and leave a rating in the Apple Podcasts app. I'm your host, Jennifer Palmieri. D. Scott Carroll engineered this podcast. Jessica Williams handles research. Stephanie Stender is our post producer. Sari Soffer is our producer. And Christian Castor-Russell is our executive producer.